A critical guiding principle is that we are designing and studying with the people for whom these programs are intended, not to them and not for them. And I think that the research that we're doing can be part of a move towards a more participatory approach that both respects the essential nature of empirical investigation and that says that the people for whom these approaches are designed are included from the very beginning and even articulating what are the questions of importance. So that research from its very beginning is actually a relational practice. Welcome to Mind and Life. I'm Wendy Hasenkamp. My guest today is clinical psychologist and contemplative researcher Sona Dimijin. Sona is a professor in the Department of Psychology and Neuroscience at the University of Colorado Boulder, and she's also the director of the Renee Crown Wellness Institute. Her research focuses on cultivating mental health and wellness among women, children, and families by engaging people's capacities for learning to care for themselves and their communities. When I planned to interview Sona, I expected we'd talk about her work that she's perhaps best known for, applying mindfulness and contemplative practice to help with postpartum depression. And we do talk about that. But what I didn't expect was that we'd take the lens much wider, looking at how she's focused her career pushing back against systems of inequality and making research into a relational practice. In our conversation, we talk about her own path to contemplative practice and research and how we can use collaborative teams in scientific research to reduce bias. She then describes her work with new and expectant moms who are at risk for postpartum depression. And we also discuss how she's been working with young women to address stereotypes about appearance and using peers instead of researchers or contemplative teachers to deliver instruction of helpful embodied practices. Sona also gives a wonderful explanation of community-engaged participatory research and how scientists can move toward working with and not for the communities they're trying to help. We talk about creating digital platforms for more equitable dissemination of contemplative programs and her deep commitment to bringing a lens of anti-racism to her research and teaching. Sona has developed numerous resources that are available online. We've linked to those in our show notes, along with lots of other great content from Sona, including a powerful keynote lecture from Mind and Life's International Symposium for Contemplative Research in 2018. I've been fortunate to know Sona for many years through her work with Mind and Life, where she's served on the Research Advisory Council and now serves on our board of directors. I really enjoyed diving more deeply into Sona's impressive body of work in this conversation. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. It's my pleasure to share with you Sona Dimijin. Well, Sona, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Wendy, it is such a pleasure. And yeah, just really delighted to have a chance to talk with you. I would love to start just by hearing how you originally became interested in mindfulness, contemplative practice and mental health. That's a Great question. And um, hmm, it's a hard one to answer. The short answer would be, it feels like the work of my entire life. I don't know, I'd almost like have to go a few generations back to really <laughs> give you a true or a full answer to that question. Oh, that's interesting. Um, 
Yeah, I guess I could say, you know, if I answer that question from more of a, you know, professional researcher standpoint, um, I would say a pivotal moment was when I was in graduate school um, at the University of Washington, where I had gone to study with a graduate mentor who at the time was doing really one of the, you know, more groundbreaking studies in how to treat depression. Mm. And I worked really closely with him for two years um, uh, in our lab, which was at that time a large lab of graduate students and, you know, mental health providers and other faculty collaborators, both at the University of Washington and at multiple other universities um, around the country. And it was at the end of my second year of graduate school that um, he was scheduled to present a keynote at a conference and didn't show up at the Mm. podium, you know, and there were hundreds of people in the room waiting. And so security was finally sent up to his hotel room and and we learned that he had died that morning suddenly of a heart attack oh my yeah so it really it was a um a really difficult event for everyone who was involved in that research and there actually was a another large study that was going on in tandem uh, which was a study of an acceptance-based intervention for distress among couples Mm. Um, so there were these two large teams and my graduate advisor was someone who was like kind of one of these people who just lived kind of larger than life. And so I think there was the expected shock of an event like that. And then there was this added layer that here was this person who I think we all thought sort of like lived by his own rules um, or mm. defied, you know, the usual logic of the universe. So I think there was also this sense of shock of like the um, reality of mortality. Mm-hmm. And so at that time, I would say for myself, had this really like dual focus. One was how to continue the research that we were doing. Um, and how to care for the, you know, other members of our research team and lab Mm. and how to sustain myself through that shock and grief and loss in a way that I could continue to be a resource for all of these other people who were, you know, depending in different ways on this work including Mm. the research participants in this large clinical trial that we were running. And so I would say that was a moment where I really turned to um, mindfulness as a practice and, I don't know, strengthened or deepened, um, I guess you could say, my commitment to that practice and also the ways in which it informed and infused my work life. It really was the ways in which I would say I sought to show up at work and also be part of creating a context for other people in the in the work that we were doing together. At that time, I also was working with Marsha Linehan, who was another faculty member at the University of Washington, on research on dialectical behavior therapy in her lab. And, you know, I would meet with her frequently and each time I would meet with her, she would say, like, what are you interested in? Like, what do you really want to do, you know? Mm. 
And I would always come back to this both sense of gratitude for and curiosity about the practice of mindfulness. And at some point, you know, she said, well, why aren't, why isn't this part of your research program? Like, why aren't you studying this? Yeah. And I think that question stayed with me for, you know, quite a while. Was this before it was really a field of study? It was, I would say it was like emerging as a field of study because Mm -hmm. as all this was happening, Zindel Siegel and Mark Williams and John Teasdale we're starting to work on mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. I see. And at some point in this process, and I was reading these papers as they were coming out, and the book that they published, and at some point I had this um, clarity of conviction that this is what I wanted to learn, and I wanted to bring together this greater integration, I would say, of um, practices that had been and you know were continuing to be deeply sustaining personally, while also all this, you know, very much wanting to bring some of my own, you know, sort of full life as a person into my Mm. work and also finding the ways in which I was bringing my, you know, kind of scientist mind into my mindfulness practice. So I would go on retreat or sit in um, personal practice or observe interactions and, you know, have all these questions about like, Mm how is this working? Why is this working? For whom is this working? How, you know, are there other ways we could teach this or deliver this? And sort of what are the limits of the, you know, are there limits and how can we test those of the benefit of this kind of approach? So I, I tracked down Zindel at a annual conference, um, a kind of psychology conference that, you know, he and I and sort of many people in our part of the field attend in like some, you know, lobby of a Marriott somewhere. I don't remember what city it was in and said like, I'm a graduate student and I need to learn this. <laughs> I remember him looking That's at me great. like, what, who are you? And, you know, sort of said something like, um, where did you say you were going to school? And I said, you know, in Seattle, uh, the University of Washington. And he sort of looked at me like, um, I'm in Toronto. Like, <laughs> how are you thinking this will work? Right. So we set up this plan where I started doing mindfulness-based cognitive therapy groups um, with a psychologist um, in practice, Sandra Kaufman, in Seattle. And Zindel, um, like, remote trained and supervised us in that process wow. for a number of years. And um, that's part of the beginning. Yeah. Something you just said really resonates with me about doing these practices and then having kind of the the research mind to bring in and thinking about like, how is this working? And uh, that certainly was the case a lot for me. Mm-hmm. What do you think about, um, some people would debate about the role of people who practice then doing the research, because there could be a potential for like bringing in bias mm-hmm. or, you know, trying to prove, quote unquote, right. that, that it works or something like that. So how do you think about that, the role of um, your own personal experience as a practitioner and then from the more objective side as a researcher? Um, well, I guess I have a couple of thoughts about that. So one is, I think, you know, in in my field, we would talk about that as allegiance effects of the investigator. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, there's evidence that those exist. And I think we all have bias. Sure. So I think whether or not you're, you know, an intense meditator or an intense skeptic about meditation, I think that 
we all come to everything that we do with bias. So I think it's an illusion to think that there's anyone who's free of bias. And I think the key is really to one, recognize that that exists. And two, for me, that's really, uh, it informs in a pretty significant way, you know, my commitment to empirical science. Um, Mm. Because I really think that the main um, protections against um, the kind of biases that you're asking about really come in the research methods and the designs that we use to do the studies that we do. So for me, the value of a randomized controlled trial is in part um, that it allows protections against a whole host of problematic inferences that people could make about the potential benefits or harms of, of an approach. Um, so that's one piece is really, you know, I think that's a big part of why we do science so that we're not overprivileging um, one person's opinion mm. and that we, we build in methods that help to acknowledge biases that exist. I think the other piece that's important is a collaborative approach to research. Mm. And I often use that example of that study that Tor Wager and Yoni Ashar and Roshi ha- Joan Halifax and I did on the compassion practices because really I think at the beginning of that study, you know, we were kind of Roshi Joan and I were on one side of being really interested in and and believing that there um, that there are benefits to the intentional practice of compassion in daily life. And, you know, on the other side, I think Tor was was more of a skeptic or mm. I don't know if he would identify as a skeptic, but at least, you know, was keeping a very wide open mind um, mm-hmm. and wanted to build in some protections that the claims that we might make around the efficacy of this practice were really specific to the practice not just to the kind of expectancies that people might hold when you ask them to do something every day um, for a four-week period. And then I think, Mm -hmm. you know, Yoni was kind of like perfectly situated, you know, in the center of all of us and so was was really the ideal person to, you know, be implementing that study. But I think that does provide a guide to the kind of um, collaborations that I think are really critical Um, In my role as the director of the Crown Institute, I've been thinking a lot about what is a kind of guiding approach to the research that we conduct. And, you know, the first step and the really I see as a foundational success to any research study is bringing together, you know, a trusted team of experts. And that really defines this idea of expertise in a very broad way Mm. that in part Uh, seeks to connect people right from the outset that have differing views and that um, engages the process of research as one that is really dedicated to that kind of, you know, curiosity and uh, investigation in the context of difference. Yeah, You've highlighted a couple of things that I definitely want to circle back to, one of which is you have an excellent way of bringing together teams that involve the community and the participants whom uh, you're doing the research for. So I want to be sure to come back to that. But 
First, I'd like to dig in. Uh, you've spent a lot of your career studying women's mental health, mm-hmm. in particular um, postpartum depression and uh, new and expectant moms who are at risk for postpartum depression. So how did you land with that population? And can you describe a little bit about the prevalence and the course of postpartum depression for listeners who might not be familiar? Sure. Well, so interestingly, that line of research really came out of those mindfulness-based cognitive therapy groups that I was leading or co-leading as a graduate student. One participant in those groups, um, it's like one of those moments you can still remember like where you were standing and um, what was happening in the context around you. And, you know, she said to me like this uh, towards the end of the eight week series, this has been incredibly helpful. I just wish that I had had an opportunity to learn these skills before I had my daughter. And, Mm. um, and she had talked in the class about doing some of like the body scan practices with her, you know, toddler next to her and, it just was this moment where I thought, like, what are we offering for women during pregnancy who are vulnerable mm. to depression? And so I went to the literature to begin to investigate that question. And at that time, the options were extremely limited. Mm. Um, it'd be good to come back to that point, too, because in many ways, the world hasn't advanced that much in terms of the mm. actual like daily options that people are provided for caring for their own um, mental health during these critical life cycle transitions continue to be very limited. But at that time, even in the research literature, um, it was pretty limited. And it was clear that antidepressant medication was really the standard of care and the main option provided to women during pregnancy, as was the case in the general population. Mm. And yet during that time of a woman's life, Um, there also were multiple competing concerns around, you know, potential adverse effects of taking antidepressants during pregnancy. Right. So what was very clear, what continues to be clear, is that women who become pregnant having had depression in their history are at significantly increased odds of, of becoming depressed again. It is of the a past history of depression is the most robust predictor of getting depressed during pregnancy or early parenting that we have. So I thought at that time, we know that these women are at increased risk. We know that they're asking for other options. We know in a fairly straightforward way how to identify who's at increased risk. And the emerging literature on MBCT and the general population suggests that we actually have an approach that is helpful for exactly this purpose. Right. So at that time, um, Cheryl Goodman, who's a dear friend and professor at Emory University, and I started working together, and I had since moved to the University of Colorado, Boulder. Um, so we were working across Colorado and in Atlanta, Georgia, and really began to investigate the use of this approach and the adaptation for women during pregnancy and early parenting. And and the studies that we did suggested that it absolutely met the stated interests and preferences of women in terms of their mental Mm. health care during pregnancy. And it offered significant protection in terms of reduction of risk of um, depressive relapse. 
um, compared to care as usual within those studies was um, within the Kaiser um, Permanente system. So all of those women had care as usual, um, which I think, again, goes back to that question of access, which, you know, for many people in the in their communities at large, like care as usual means next to nothing to nothing. So you mentioned uh, kind of key developmental transitions that that people go through in mm-hmm. life, and that there's a there's a real lack of support mm-hmm. oftentimes in this. Um, another group that that you've worked with a lot is adolescents and, and young people. Yeah. Um, so I know that recent years have seen a large increase in levels of loneliness, anxiety, depression in young people. Can you share a little bit about your work uh, in those populations? I'd love to share about that. Um, So that's some really amazing work that we've been doing that really grew out of a focus on um, the ways in which young women struggle with their feelings about their bodies and Mm. this sense of um, dissatisfaction, body dissatisfaction that um, emerges by age 17 for, you know, over three quarters of uh, what young women report. So we started with this approach that is really um, based in cognitive dissonance theory that is an approach called the Body Project, which seeks to uh, help young women, I would say, through a, a number of different practices, develop a more critical awareness of um biases around appearance, um, uh, cultural stereotypes and biases that adversely impact young women. And um, we worked with young women in high school and college over the past few years to design together an approach that includes some of those elements, but also um, includes in more more experiential ways of developing a different kind of relationship to one's body. And many of those practices draw from contemplative practice traditions, Mm. but are offered in ways that I think are briefer and, I don't know, maybe more fun um, than (laughs) what one might, you know, the kinds of stereotypes one might hold of just, you know, like sitting quietly on a cushion by yourself in a room for many hours. Um, So we're doing research now that is investigating the impact of that program. And one of the pieces that is really exciting to me is that that study and multiple other research studies that we're doing now are really exploring this idea of peer delivery. So it's actually young women Mm. in college working with um, like peers, so other college students or near peers, which are students, young women in high school. Mm -hmm. So... And part of what's exciting to me about that is really both the pragmatic implications, which have to do with making this kind of knowledge and making these practices more widely available to people so that not everything perhaps needs to be mediated by, you know, uh, an advanced degree. Mm -hmm. And I think it also challenges us to think about ways of delivering 
the the uniqueness of these practices and forms that are engaging and applicable to young people's lives. And I think the most effective way we can do that is by working in partnership with young people. So the practices really focus on practices of grounding. So really attending to sensations in the feet and the mm. connection between the feet and the earth and ways in which young women can use that practice in, you know, very kind of everyday moments as well as everyday challenges, connecting to this sense of uh, like an inner smile that one mm. can experience, um, movement practices that have to do with um, really feeling the body as a tree and um, rooted in the earth and the practice of, of movement in that context and shaking mm-hmm. the tree. Uh, <laughs> so there are a range of practices that were developed um, and recorded actually by Caroline Fole, who here in Boulder and has been just a great partner and, and guide in many ways. So, and, you know, the research is ongoing and, you know, to hear some of the young women in that study talk about the ways in which um, these practices are a resource for them, are mm. a different, provide a different kind of experience of, of their bodies and um, provide a different way of uh, connecting with and being aware of how to care for one's body as opposed to just uh, engage with it as a, you know, something to be... Um, managed or criticized or Mm. a source of shame or guilt. Yeah. And what's your sense? I I feel like I've heard some studies on the role of social media in this issue, particularly with young women. Yeah. What's your sense about that? Um, I think it's really a challenge. And I think it's a challenge that has been complicated um, by the pandemic and the Mm -hmm. um, need for social distancing and remote learning. I think that we rely on technology and we rely on social media in ways that I think are important Mm -hmm. and I think also create vulnerability. Right. So I think our approach to that has been to explore ways in which we can utilize some of those same, you know, media channels, essentially, um, or platforms um, for creating learning experiences that Mm. are deep and impactful and based in um, science and uh, prioritize connection and community. So it's an ongoing a place of reflection, I think, that is needed, you know, in our fields, in the world at large, among parents, young people. Yeah. And I love the idea of using peers Mm -hmm. to help train this because I'm sure in a way it makes it more accessible and then also serves to build community, which is really wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. And it also, you know, keeps you honest too. Um, And so... You know, I think a a critical guiding principle is the idea that we are designing and studying with the people for whom these programs are intended, not Mm. to them and not for them. It's really like that, that that choice of preposition, like that little word of with, it carries a lot. Um, There's a lot packed in there. Yeah. Can you unpack some of what's in there? (laughs) Um, 
Well, you know, our, our, to go back to your question around, you know, the experience of depression for women during mm-hmm. pregnancy and postpartum, an example that I often use is um, this example of the rest cure. Um, mm. So, you know, the, the short story, um, The Yellow Wallpaper by Charlotte Perkins Gilman um, tells the story of this woman who was essentially confined to a room um, and told to rest. And it tells the story of her experience. And the author wrote a newspaper magazine article about the story at some point in which um, she revealed that the story was autobiographical. And she Mm. said her doctors as um, treatment for a postpartum mood disorder um, and in her case, probably postpartum psychosis, had prescribed the rest cure, which was to have no work, to have mm. no um, social contact, to essentially be confined in isolation to a room. And mm. in the article she writes about it, she says, you know, I practiced this until, I think she said, it drove me to like near utter mental ruin. And for me, that example is a useful one because it's an example of what happens when professional fields that have power and privilege, as Mm. medicine did, you know, at that time, uh, was very much organized around an authority-based system. You know, I'm the doctor. I tell you what's Uh good for you. You do it um, as the patient. And obviously, the field of medicine has evolved much you know, since then. And yet there are ways in which I think some of that kind of paternalistic attitude around expertise persists. And Mm -hmm. I think that what I'm interested in, um, the ways in which the research that we're doing can be part of, and again, there are, you know, many people and aspects of science that are moving in this direction, but a move towards a more participatory approach that both respects the essential nature of um, empirical investigation and that that says that the people for whom these approaches you know are designed are are included from the very beginning and even articulating what are the questions of importance mm, mm-hmm. in what ways have we defined the problems? Um, or are we defining the problems that influence our choice of methods and our choice of, you know, interventions or, you know, in the case of this conversation, like the choice of contemplative practices from which we might um, draw so that research from its very beginning is actually a, a relational practice. Um, so that's one piece I would say about it. I think the other piece that I think has been foregrounded, I would say, since the summer has been the ways in which research programs, projects, teams have lacked diversity and representation um, Mm. with respect to race and ethnicity among other identity statuses, as well as the populations for which, you know, with which studies have been conducted. And so I think bringing the question, focusing the lens on who is doing the research. I just think we're at a moment in our field where 
there's a an opportunity for a different kind of engagement with that question that I think actually offers the promise for for much, much more meaningful and impactful research going forward. Mm, absolutely. And it gives these populations agency and a voice and power in the process. So and and I might actually like if I can, like interrupt and maybe just like yeah take a moment to like maybe invite a even a restatement of that question for our field because I think it's I think it's really important is that it's not about it's really not about giving agency or empowering because the agency the voice the power like they already exist in these communities mm. that we're talking about it's about acknowledging with respect mm. and that's both verbally and in our actions. And so it's real, it's a, it's about seeing and acknowledging with respect more so than it is about giving mm-hmm. power. Cause the power, the, the strength, the wisdom it's there, you know, and when I look at some of the studies we're doing right now on some of the peer delivery approaches and mm-hmm. the work we've been doing for the last few years with um, communities of uh, Spanish speaking women, many of whom are in immigrant communities in, in both urban and rural settings, um, the wisdom around the knowledge around how to work effectively within those communities, like it's been there. That's not anything mm. I brought, you know, mm-hmm. as a researcher, I brought a willingness to listen and a sense, I think of at least an aspiration of cultural humility. So I think starting with that, starting with the premise that we need people with different kinds of expertise at the table from the beginning, um, and that we all come with agency and voice. And it's really about designing the table in a way that acknowledges that. Mm, that's a really helpful reframe. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying that. Yeah. Um, could you describe a little bit like how this process works, designing a study with the community that you're working with? Yeah. So it requires a certain tolerance for like messiness. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I can describe a little bit and probably never goes exactly the same way. Um, Right. I think actually within the Crown Institute right now, one of the projects that we're working on is creating a set of participatory design tools um, that will help um, researchers and communities work together to Mm -hmm. do exactly what, what we've been talking about. So to start you know, at the very beginning foundational step of convening a team and within that team begin to explore areas of expertise, areas of distrust that exist when you bring people Mm. together who hold different biases and views and identities and backgrounds um, and begin to build a sense of trust and shared purpose. So, you know, all the way from that to like moving to at the other end of the research um, spectrum, which is where you're really looking to how do we begin to scale and sustain this work over time so that we can increase access. Because I Mm. think um, these participatory methods and this emphasis on working with is critical 
but is not, I would say it's necessary, but not sufficient to ensure mm-hmm. that all people who are interested in these approaches actually have the opportunity to connect with them. Yeah. So stay tuned on the, on the how, um, maybe I'll have a, a great set of tools to share with you in the coming months. <laughs> Well, to that end, I know you have worked, um, you know, on digital platforms and things like that to increase access. I was curious how you think about the, I don't know if it's attention, but just like the dynamic between making things widely accessible. And some people have critiqued that there can either be like a watering down or it's, you really need to be working individually with the teacher. Mm -hmm. So how, how do you think about those challenges with digital platforms? I think everything that you just articulated is absolutely valid. And Mm -hmm. I think in any kind of important work, there will be creative tensions. For me, the, the question is always, to what extent can we find a middle road through these um, positions that appear to be in conflict with one another? How can we engage both in a way that allows what, again, appears to be a conflict to instead become a dynamic creative tension that propels us into something new. And so to each of the positions that you you said, I would say like, yes, 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 Mm -hmm. and yes. And, you know, where do we go from here? And so I think we are learning um, through the work that we're doing. Um, I would say for, in terms of the, the work that I have done, the the digital program that I think we have investigated most rigorously to date has been the Mindful Mood Balance Program that mm-hmm. Zendel Siegel and I worked on and um, and developed and studied across multiple clinical trials, including one randomized controlled trial that we published at the beginning of this year in 2020. So we published a study in which we had randomly assigned 460 adults with um, histories of depression to participate in this eight-session program called Mindful Mood Balance um, over a 12-week period or to to receive usual care in the Kaiser Permanente system. And what we found was that over that 12 weeks and Uh, a one-year follow-up period was that people who participated in the MMB program had showed significant benefit with respect to Mm. their mental health, their depression and anxiety symptoms um, were significantly um, reduced. And that built upon a number almost a decade of work designing that program, really investigating how can we bring the same types of learning experiences that people have while attending in-person MBCT classes. Um, Mm -hmm. How can we create a a version of that in an online digital course? So the the findings of that study um, were striking, I think, because Mm -hmm. of the length of follow-up, because of the um, kind of experimental um, nature of the design um, because of the brevity, the relative brevity of the program and the ease with which people could access it. How long was it? It was eight sessions. Um, okay. and, and people had access to a, it for the um, main intervention window for 12 weeks. And okay. we're doing a version of that uh, program. I mean, we're testing a version of that program called Mindful Mood Balance for Moms now in a study that we're doing in collaboration with 
um, Lee Cohen's group at Mass General Hospital and Baby Center, which is the largest digital community for new and expectant parents mm-hmm. and parents in general in the world. And we have enrolled 500 women in that study um, wow. and are continuing to follow them to understand the the impact of their learning and experience. Is this program geared towards people at risk for depression? It's um, been tested with people who have histories of depression and also people who have histories of depression and are experiencing residual depressive symptoms. So not people who are currently in an acute episode of depression, Mm -hmm. but who have some risk of either depressive symptoms becoming worse or experiencing a relapse of depression. Yeah. I, I thought of something that I wanted to ask earlier so is this MVCT for expectant moms or, or new moms, is this something that women can find in their communities? Is it widely available or? This is such a great question. I wish I could, I wish my answer was a resounding yes, um, yeah. but it's not. Um, no, you know, we have really struggled after each of these research studies that, you know, we've done um, with this question of, you know, how and what ways are these findings from scientific studies actually available or influencing people's daily lives? You know, if you go into a prenatal care clinic, how many, you know, prenatal providers are suggesting women learn these sorts of skills in whatever places right. or ways they might do so? So so there, there are a couple of different strategies we have taken. We You know, myself and wonderful team of collaborators. Um, one is... Cheryl Goodman and I wrote a book that conveys, you know, some of the core skills and practices um, with the recordings that uh, Sharon Salzberg recorded that that were what was used in the research that we did. Um, so that's one way. The other way is um, Zindel Siegel and I co-founded a company called Mindful Noggin that makes available some of these programs, both for clinicians who are interested in learning more about how to integrate these practices into you know, their health or mental health care delivery, as well as um, the program for the general population um, makes that more broadly available. And then um, it's also a big, for me, a big part of the interest in working within high schools and working with young women, you know, at an earlier point in their development so that when they're even, you know, contemplating life decisions around, you know, work and family and kids and parenting, that they already have these sorts of skills, you know, really integrated as part of, of their own lives. And so beginning to think about, say, that the program that I was describing to you earlier or ways in which we're working with educators right now on, um, we just completed a a certificate program on compassion and dignity that was a collaboration with Jhimpala and um, our School of Education here at the University of Colorado Boulder that is a certificate that educators can uh, receive through four courses that are offered in an online learning context that focus on compassion and dignity as an Mm. educator. And the first three are asynchronous courses, so educators can take them at any time. And the fourth is a capstone course that's offered synchronously, although remotely. So you're with a community of other educators who are learning and practicing with you, um, 
but you can do it, you know, from anywhere and it doesn't require being in person. So, so that's all work we had started, you know, years before. And as the reality of social distancing and, you know, has um, become so much a part of our daily lives in 2020, it's, we have felt grateful to at least have like, have been building towards these tools that can support people during a time when um, it's so hard to access these kinds of learning experiences and resources in person. I saw on your your website for the Crown Institute that um, you're doing more and more work in anti-racism space, mm-hmm. and you developed a, a course, an undergrad course around anti-racism. I just wondered if you wanted to say anything about that work in particular. It's hard to know almost where to begin. I guess I would say in some ways it's work that's, I don't know, that, that is both like very private and individual, you know, like there's, mm. there's interior work, I guess would be the better way of saying it than mm-hmm. private. Um, there's like some very interior work that I think is really critical. And then there's a lot of exterior work Yeah, and it is grounded again in relationship and it's grounded in um, curiosity and reflection, all, um, you know, skills that I think contemplative practice traditions have a, have important things to say about. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, commitment to staying in relationship and in, in a commitment to um, also being an activist as well mm-hmm. in kind of local and, you know, larger ways. So like a recognition of um, inequality in ways that are linked to identity status has always been at the heart of the research that I have done and in Mm. particular focused around um, gender. I think for me, I guess since this summer, I have committed to and have been committed to systematically reviewing every project, Mm. every team, every course, every decision through a lens of anti-racism and anti-oppression. And, Mm. and that has resulted in taking on new projects. It's resulted in, in stepping away from some projects. Um, It's resulted in, um, new collaborations and, and also, um, you know, really hard, difficult personal reflections and also hard conversations with, with, um, colleagues and friends Mm -hmm. around, um, racism and oppression. And I think this time is, it's a time of reckoning and it's a time for questioning it's a time of listening, a time for humility on the part of, yeah. and, and the questioning, the listening and the humility, I think are 
um, it's a time for for white people to really bring those um, to the fore. So it is central. The focus on anti-racism and a commitment to linking anti-racism in particular to an understanding of the health and social impacts of the pandemic Mm. and the wellness implications of the pandemic was central in the course that we developed for first-year students. And that was with a whole team of people, including my incredible colleagues, Daryl Maeda and Donna Mejia. And it also has been really central in work that we have done on a project specifically focused on mindfulness classes um, for college students and Mm. development of a curriculum. And that project, through bringing the focus on anti-racism and a commitment to racial justice, has really required fundamentally rethinking the aims of that work Mm. and raising questions around, like, who has a right to wellness. Mm. Um, And when we offer practices, when practices, you know, are foregrounded, like um, breathing practices in a context where the centrality of the statement, I can't breathe in Black Lives Matter, um, or the experience, you know, the the nature of COVID and the, mm-hmm. um, the loss of friends and family members that, you know, many students have had due to COVID, it requires us to really rethink some of these practices in a historical and contemporary context. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done there. Yeah. I think we're just getting started. Yeah. I, I really appreciate all the work you're doing in this space. And I think it it's clear how there's a through line. Like you said, so much of your work has been focused on systems of inequality, you mm-hmm. know, whether it's around gender or race or other issues. And so I just really appreciate how you're weaving it all together and, and the heart that you're bringing to this work. So thanks so much for sharing your time and wisdom with us today. Oh, it has been a pleasure. And thank you so much, Wendy, for this podcast series and the really, I think the intention that, um, like animates this work, which is how to bring these practices and ideas and knowledge to all people for whom this could hold benefit. So I think it's really critical to have these different channels. And I think your podcast is a really critical one. This episode was edited and produced by me and Phil Walker. Music on the show is from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal. Show notes and resources for this and other episodes can be found at podcast.mindandlife.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes and share it with a friend. If something in this conversation sparked insight for you, we'd love to know about it. You can send an email or voice memo to podcast at mindandlife.org. Mind and Life is a production of the Mind and Life Institute. Visit us at mindandlife.org, where you can learn more about how we bridge science and contemplative wisdom to foster insight and inspire action towards flourishing. There, you can also support our work, including this podcast. <laughs>